tell you, my name's Taylor Ince, and I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Galleria. And uh, man, we're just glad you're here with us to to worship God. When when the numbers are down a little bit as they are this weekend, and that was that was foreseen as people are out celebrating in a way, it's just a good reminder of something that we ought to always have on our minds and hearts, but sometimes slips away, which is that you know what? Nothing's changed. We miss a few people, but we are here meeting with the living God who's never absent. He's never on vacation. He's always here and he's always committed to being with us, to staying with us, to holding us in his hand. And no one can snatch us out of his hand because of the work of Jesus Christ for us. And that is an ironclad promise and just a wonderful thing. Think about it. God is here in our midst now because of Jesus and his work ministering to us, hopefully speaking, and I know that he is, um, receiving our worship, receiving us as we are. So I'm really encouraged about that, and I'm encouraged that you're here. So, okay. Um, Austin, thanks for reading that text. Um, I want to talk today about really what this, this text and I think the whole book highlights, which is the compassion of God. And as I do, I want to read a text actually from the Gospels um, of an encounter that Jesus had and then talk about him. Luke uh, relates to us in his Gospel in chapter 7. He says, soon afterward, he, meaning Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Compassion. Um, It is used, uh, it is the emotion that is ascribed more than any other emotion to our Lord. Jesus Christ when he was on this earth by the gospel writers. Compassion. I want to sort of fill out the scene for you a little bit. It starts off by saying soon afterward, um, Jesus was, was on his way from healing to healing, from preaching one message to another about the kingdom of God during his three or so years of ministry. And so um, he had just feel, finished healing a centurion's servant. And after that, he's got this huge entourage that is building. Um, one scholar thinks about probably about a thousand people And he comes, probably in the evening, to this funeral procession at Nain. Um, Nain was a a town of probably about 500 people. So Jesus probably had about twice the number of followers that even this whole town had. And the whole town had come out, most likely, because this was the custom in the ancient Near East. The whole town would process at the end of the workday, out behind the funeral bier, to outside of the city, Um, for burial when someone like this died. It was a community event. Everyone knew each other, and everybody was mourning. And Nain would have been, and and was indeed, uh, southwest of where Jesus grew up, um, which was on the sort of southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, which, of course, is is north of the Dead Sea, and the Jordan connects the two. So Nain was a little town between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, if you can position yourselves there. And it was evening. It was getting to be dusk, and the sun was Um, perhaps near setting, depending on the season. And Jesus, with his huge following, comes upon 
this procession, this funeral procession. Um, and what Luke tells us is that uh, the person who has died is, he's a man, he's a young man, and he's the son of this woman, but not, just not any woman. Luke says she's a widow, which means, of course, that her husband has died, and, and he is her only son, or was. And, and so that would have meant that all of her social security, her pension, her 401k, is all, all died with this guy. Because she couldn't have gotten a job in this economy, in this place, at this time. Um, as well, and worse, her only dear son has just died. Young. Um, we don't know why. And Jesus, with this huge following behind him, the power of, of the living God in him, because he is indeed God on earth, comes. And what we see, Luke says, is we see his compassion. It's the only thing that's described of how he feels. He sees this woman. She's probably leading the procession um, because um, that's just the, w- the way the custom was. And um, she probably had a fair amount of shame on her. And because her son had died young and her husband had also died, um, the, the zeitgeist, the worldview of, of, that, of that age, unfortunately, and Jesus set this to rights in his teaching and in his death. But the zeitgeist and the, and the, and the worldview really uh, among Jews at that time was, look, God's probably disciplining you for something you've done. And this, this could well be, this, this death of your husband and now of your young son leaving you a widow could well be your own fault because of something you've done. So she probably had not only a real sense of loss and fright, but also a lot of shame and guilt on her. And she's leading out, and there was a special sort of bit of responsibility placed on her in this culture because it was um, thought that, um, you know, a woman had a special part to play in bringing sin into the world, and so that would have just compounded. And so that could have been one of the reasons she was probably leading the funeral beer as well. Um, And so there's grieving going on, but there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt probably. And Jesus in an instant sees all this, and rather than kind of grandstanding and saying, oh, you know, arise, um, he doesn't do that. He says he feels compassion. And the first thing he does, without shouting to the crowd, he doesn't do any of that, he just goes to the woman who's in the front, and the whole, the whole town is behind her. With all these people following him, he separates himself, as it were, from them, and goes up and speaks a tender word to this woman. And he says, do not weep. Just write to her. Just him and her. Full of compassion. And then he walks behind her. Next is the funeral beer. And he just touches it. And it stops. No words. And it stops. And then in a silent, not silent, in a quiet, powerful way um, that really helps us to see that he is a, a, a man and a God who is very comfortable in his own skin with this immense power, wears it lightly. He just speaks. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. He speaks right to the young man. And it says, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus what? He doesn't say, you see, everyone, this is why I have such a huge following. He doesn't do that. He takes the young man by the hand, and he gives the young man back to his mother. Tender. Very reminiscent of what he does later on the cross. Not thinking of himself on the cross, what is one of the things he does as he's dying, as he's gasping for breath, as he's suffocating, as he's bearing the weight of sin, the sins of the world upon himself. 
he looks down at his mom, who's about to be without him. And Joseph, had prob- her husband, had probably died. And he provides for her. He says, Mom, I want you to, John, I want you to take, John is his favorite disciple. John, I want you to take my mom into your custody, into your care, care for her. Uh, meet, your new, meet your new son, Mom. Son, meet your new mom. He's providing for her. He's tender. And the point is, Jesus is a God. Jesus is a man, the God-man, who is full of compassion. That's, the, that's what we discover, one of the many things we discover about God when we see him pictured in the person of Jesus Christ. We see that God is a God full of compassion. Um, that's what we see in this text here in Jonah. Uh, we see a bunch of things, but really I think the, one of the main things that the author of this book, whether it was Jonah or somebody else, wants us to understand is that God is a God of compassion, and we were just not born that way. It takes a miracle for us to become that way, and we tend to be more like Jonah, but God is a God of compassion, and he wants us to be like him. So we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. If you're a note taker, I got three points for you. Um, We're going to look at Jonah's comfort briefly. We're going to look at God's control, secondly, and then finally we're going to finish with God's great compassion. So we're going to look at Jonah's comfort, God's control, and then God's great compassion. Jonah's comfort. Um, One commentator points out something that I'd sort of seen but sort of missed, and that is that really when you look at this book, um, he seems to go, Jonah seems to go from one, from seeking one set of enclosures to the next. So this whole book, if you haven't been with us and aren't familiar with it, is, is a minor prophet. It's a minor prophet um, in, the, in the litany of prophets in the Old Testament that's a, a picture of the prophet's disobedience. It's unique among prophets in that sense. Um, it's not a prophet speaking to a word of God to Israel. It's God speaking his word to this prophet and this prophet disobeying that word. So God says, go to Nineveh and tell them, I'm going to judge them, repent. And he goes the other way. He's supposed to go east from Israel to modern-day Iraq. He goes west. He gets on a boat, and he goes the other way. But God, in his faithfulness and compassion, brings Jonah back. But um, Jonah's, the whole time, in his disobedience, he's seeking these enclosures, these safe places wherein to protect himself, as it were, from God's call and from other people that aren't like him, sinners. So he first goes down to the, in chapter 1 to the sea, and he gets in a boat. And what does he do? He goes down into the boat, into this enclosure. thinks he's safe there. He's running from God. That doesn't work. So then he seeks the sea, actually, as an enclosure. enclosure. The sea closes around him, and he thinks, that's it for me. I still don't have to go to Nineveh. But God actually uses this thing of death. If anything meant death in judgment in the Old Testament, it was the sea. The Israelites were not a maritime people. The sea was like, it's going to swallow you. Things come up from the deep. You're dead. You're a dead man. He thinks he's, he's finished with God's call. He's not finished. God uses the sea to save him. God uses death for life. Does that sound familiar? That's the way God works. Swallows him, and then swallows him again with a fish, another means of death to save him again. And even in the belly of the fish, so he seeks the ship's hold. He seeks the sea as an enclosure. He's even kind of thinking, as we looked at his prayer a few weeks ago, he's even sort of thinking of the fish as this enclosure that's really keeping him sort of 
his own person, God, you've saved me, thanks a lot. There's no, there's no repentance there. There's no, hey, I'll go to Nineveh now necessarily. Um, but God uses that to spit, to have the fish spit him back where he started. No progress. There's no progress in disobedience, but there is mercy. And then he responds to God this time in obedience. And here in this close of this book, we see him making what is called a booth for himself. He's setting up a little tent right outside of modern-day Mosul, Iraq, very hot. He's just removed himself from the city. He's been in there long enough. He's out now, sort of the reluctant, prophetic, okay, I did my thing. Now I'm out. I preached the shortest sermon possible, five words. There's not a single offer of repentance in there. It's just, it's not, as we said, it's not even turn or burn. It's just burn. But they turn. Ninevites turn. To the shame of Israel, they actually repent. To the shame of Jonah, to our shame, they repent. And he's just ticked. He's like, well, the 40 days are still going on. Maybe they won't repent enough. Maybe God will change his mind and actually do what he said. Come on, God. So he goes and gets a front row seat, really just outside the city. And he's just checking the watch. He's just waiting. And he sets up the seat and this tent and this booth. And he's just chilling. And uh, he's hoping that God's going to rain down. There's, there are words that connect this city and what God's going to do to Nineveh to Sodom and Gomorrah. Overturn is the word. It's the same word in the Hebrew. So that was part of his message. God's going to overturn the city in 40 days. But they repent. And so Jonah sets up and just says, well, maybe, maybe he'll still rain down fire and brimstone. So he's waiting for that, hoping for that. And meanwhile, he just, God causes a, causes a plant in this really hot heat to, um, to grow up. Overnight, a castor oil plant, possibly, it can grow up that fast, and it has big, broad, shady leaves. And he just falls in love with this plant. He just falls in love with it. Um, and the fact is, look, Jonah, he's seeking another enclosure here. He's, he cares more about a plant and about his own temporary comfort. Let that sink in. God, may it sink into my heart. He cares more about his own comfort than he does about the eternal destiny of over 100,000 people. There's an irony here um, about this word booth. It's the same word, it's Sukkot in the Hebrew, and I only say that word because some of you guys know that word as associated with the, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, same feast, and uh, the Feast of Sukkot. And it's a, um, it's a feast that Israel would celebrate and was told by God to celebrate every year, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents. They would set up little tents once a year. They would leave their houses. It would be like us setting up tents in our front yards and going out of our houses, because they're now in Israel in the Promised Land, but every year to remind themselves of the fact that they weren't in the Promised Land, that they were 40 years in the wilderness in tents, kept alive by God's faithfulness and by his providential hand. They would set up these tents to remind themselves of his faithfulness. The irony here is that Israel was called to celebrate this as a regular feast to remember what? To remember the fact that they were in the wilderness. Why? Why did they spend so long there? Because they were great and obedient? No. They spent so long in the wilderness because they were disobedient, but incredibly truculent and unbelieving. And they, and yet God had mercy on them and did not wipe them out and maintained them and blessed them as a people and brought them into this land flowing with milk and honey. And so the Feast of Booths is a reminder to Jonah, to Israel, um, of God's undeserved favor on them. Um, and this is exactly what Jonah sets up, this booth, same word, as he hopes that God will not show that mercy 
that he's been shown, that his people have been shown to the Ninevites. So there's an amazing irony here, and we're made to laugh. The whole book is engineered to make us laugh at Jonah, but then it turns, it's, then all of a sudden, to our horror perhaps, we realize it's a mirror. The gun's actually pointed at us. I am Jonah. I do care. And I want you to ask this question. How do I care more for my comfort than I do about the eternal souls of those that I'm brushing shoulders with every day? In what ways do I, I mean, easy litmus test, do I spend my resources, which are God's resources, my time, my talents, my treasure, those three T's. I tend not to like alliteration as much, but my money, my mind, my, my other resources, my time, my skills, my gifts. How do I spend those? And that will, that's a tracer that will lead me to what I value. And I'm guilty. I'm guilty of being just like Jonah. So, so that's Jonah. Um, and that's him seeking his own comfort and him seeking to just, seeking really to enjoy God's favor for his own comfort rather than allowing, and I have the phrase here on another sheet that I never read, rather than allowing God's compassion to do what it's really meant to do, not to protect us from other people, but to project us into, really in, to, toward other people, into their society into the broken, into the sinful, into those who don't know their right hand from their left. Is that what God's favor on your life is doing? Is that what's, as a church, can we ask that question? Is that what's God's favor on our lives? And so much favor in so many ways, materially, spiritually, is doing. Is it propelling us, or are we seeing it as just a protection, as a wall? You know, I mean, all wealth is a blessing from God, and material wealth is just one form of God's blessing, but usually what wealth does is it does the opposite. When we receive that blessing from God, even if we don't acknowledge it's from God, it is from God. When we receive that blessing from God, usually we use it to build bigger walls. Usually, really wealthy people are all the more hard to reach. They isolate. Wealth tends to isolate. And wealth is more than just material. It could be up here. It could be a bunch of different things. But that's our human and our fleshly and our broken and our fallen tendency. But oh, that we could be a people who are like God and who see that his compassion and mercy toward us is not to protect us from others, but to project us into their lives. That's what it's for. Okay, that's Jonah's comfort. Let's look at his, God's control, not Jonah's control, God's control. So really here, what God's doing is he's setting the trap. God uses his power not to crush us, although sometimes it feels like that as it did to Jonah. I mean, he's just whining and throwing a fit to God right now. And it's hot out there, man. <laughs> Dang. I don't even want to know how hot it is in Mosul, Iraq, when he's doing that thing, waiting up over the city for Mosul, for Nineveh to burn. But it's hot. And he's throwing a fit. So he feels like he's being crushed. But no, God uses his power not to crush us, but to teach us to tear down the booths devoted to our own comfort that we so carefully, don't we, construct? And to move us toward the heart of compassion that he has, and therefore toward having hearts of compassion like his. So let's look at that. So first, God appoints a plant, as we said, to shade. Literally, the word in the Hebrew is to appoint or ordain. It's a strong sovereignty of God word, a plant. Really? It didn't just grow up because of random seed. No, there's no random in God's economy. God appointed a plant 
for Jonah to grow up and to shade him. It's part of his plan. And Dan, it literally says, Jonah dances a jig. Okay, it doesn't quite, that's Taylor translation. But it says, he rejoiced with exceeding joy. That's what it says. He rejoiced with great or exceeding joy. He is dancing, throwing a party for himself over this thing. But it's not for his comfort. It's actually a setup because God's got another plan. He appoints that, and then he appoints the next, same word, then he appoints a worm. And I think the, your text says something like it eats the plant. Literally, the word is attacks. He appoints this worm to attack the plant. So that's part of his plan, too. And, and then the plant starts to wither, and the sun comes out the next day and just blazes, and just the plant goes to nothing. And it's all part of God's plan. And then, and then third time it's used in this chapter, he appoints an east wind, a scorching east wind, and the sun rises hot over Mosul and just burns the heck out of Jonah. And um, he's just feeling like he's getting rocked. But God is not trying to crush Jonah. He's trying to teach him about his own, com- his own desire for control and for comfort and God's heart for compassion. He was trying to move Jonah to see how ridiculous he's being. And he's trying to move us to see how ridiculous we can be. Okay, There's this, this word appoint is used one other time. It speaks to us about God's control over the tiny things. It's used one other time in the book. It's used in chapter one at the end of God appointing a bigger thing, a fish, a great fish, probably a whale, to swallow Jonah. So first, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, spit him back up, and then he appoints this plant to shade Jonah, and then he appoints a worm to attack the plant, and then he appoints an east wind to just make homeboy miserable. Spurgeon says this, he says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against a steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between a mighty God that worketh all things by the sovereign counsel of his will. That's almost straight out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And no God at all. And friends, this this is my point. You are where God wants you exactly where he wants you. Your sin does not stand in the way of you and God. Satan does not stand in the way or any of his host between you and God. Um, It can't thwart God's purpose for you. Your own will, I know you prize it in this Western culture, your own will doesn't stand in the way between you and God. Thank God he is master of your will and mine. If it could, none of us would ever come to him. No, the king, we are told in Proverbs, may make his decisions, but his heart is like a course of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord just turns it wherever he will. The die is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Your sickness is no accident. God has appointed it not to crush you, but because he loves you and wants to teach you something 
I say this with trembling, friends, but I say it with the backing of God's perfect word. Are you listening? Your loss is no accident. God has appointed it because he loves you and wants to teach you something. Your situation is no accident. Your marriage is no accident. This job that you're in right now that you hate, it's no accident. Your accident is no accident. God has appointed it because he loves you and he wants to teach you about his heart and to bring you near to his heart. It may feel like a trap, and it may be a trap, but it's a trap that's set by a loving, good, compassionate God who has given all of himself to you. body and soul, to have all of you for himself, to make you the person that he has loved since before the foundation of the world, the person that he has in mind for you to be. You know, there are so many things that I'm just not going to learn in the hot tub of life with my margarita. I'm just not going to learn it. Um, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite authors, uh, singers rather, who's a bit of an author, he's a singer-songwriter, David Wilcox, he has, this, he has this line in one of his songs and he says, I'm going to sing here, first time, he says, we pretend we know the reasons that all the roots grow deeper when it's dry. And that's a fact. When it's dry, our roots dive down deeper and God knows that. And he is about growing us. And sometimes that involves not the hot tub, but the desert. But it's God who's in the desert. Um, and he cares about us deeply and about our formation and about our hearts. Um, psalm 139, that beloved psalm where it just seems so tender. Wherever I go, God, you're there. You're blessing me like crazy. I can't escape your blessing. Well, actually, it's a pretty violent psalm. Um, verse 5 says, you hem me in behind and before you set your hand upon me. That word for him is literally um, you besiege or bind me. It's sort of like a, it's a martial, almost military word. It's a violent word for sure. Sometimes it feels like God is doing violence to me, like he's setting a trap for me, like he's attacking me. But this book and so much else in his perfect word assures us that it's for my good. It's because he's not only appointing the worm and the, and the whale and the plant and the wind because he's good and because he's in control and all-powerful, but also because he's full of compassion. He cares about the Ninevites, and he cares about Jonah. And left to himself, Jonah would just perish. And so would I, and so would you. He has you right where he wants you. The trap is set. He has it set. He's in control, but he's great with compassion. So let's finish with looking at God's great compassion. Like I said uh, at the beginning, I think this, this word compassion, the whole book really seems to build toward it. And when I saw it as I was reading in my study, when I got to the word pity, I think is in the ESV, it's pity or compassion. And it's, it's mentioned twice in this short passage. Um, you have pity for the plant. Should I not pity all of these people, Jonah? Um, it, I said, I went, aha, 
that's it. it. Everything just funnels to this word, God's great pity, his compassion, this question that he leaves us with. He leaves us just hopefully self-accused, but then realizing that, hey, I have somewhere to go. I can go to this God full of compassion. Um, what does compassion look like? So, yes, it looks like this. Let's look at this briefly. Understanding compassion. What does compassion look like? Question. First answer, it looks like understanding. Um, what does this mean? 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. That's the way that God describes the Ninevites. Now, something, okay, could it be he's talking about the infants? It's a strange phrase. What does that mean? 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. Um, some people say, well, it's the infants. It's the young people. And really, that, so that means there must be many millions of folks that are in the city. Okay, that's just probably not the case. Um, what is this question that he leaves Jonah with and he leaves us with as readers of this book? What does it mean? Um, it's not likely, says one commentator, that Yahweh's words are to be interpreted as implying that the Ninevites are morally innocent. Okay? They're not innocent. We know that. Like we've read the book. That they bear no guilt for their many crimes detailed in Nahum, another minor prophet, and other Old Testament prophetical books. The people themselves acknowledge by their penitence that they have done wrong. So chapter 3, verse 5. And the royal decree categorically states this in chapter 3, verse 8. Rather, these evil, I've inserted that word, Assyrians are trapped, excuse me, they are innocent and undiscerning in another sense. Here it is. They are trapped by their troubles, not knowing how to escape them. Compassion recognizes this fact, it recognizes ignorance, it recognizes being trapped by our situation, by our sin, by the evil that besets us in life, by the evil that we produce. It recognizes this, and rather than being puffed up and against trapped people, the heart of God is one that is ignited with compassion, as we saw at the beginning with Jesus when he sees this woman, all we're told is that he just, he's filled with compassion. And this is the same God that we see here. Friends, until we see people as disadvantaged and not just at fault, we will never have the compassion of God for them. Criminal defense attorney and human rights activist Brian Stevenson um, he says, the Bureau of Justice predicts that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail in his lifetime. A black American born in the inner city has a much higher chance of going to prison and a much lower chance of getting a great education and a great job um, than my kids do. Why? Simply because of where they're born. I'm not saying they won't grow up to, you know, this, let's say this person does go to prison. I'm not saying, I'm not absolving them of responsibility. I am saying the situation itself that they're born into, they are born with a serious and very real disadvantage. That's beyond argument. Children of, of abusive parents, it's been shown, are more likely to abuse their own children. Fact. It's a disadvantage. Once you've gone to prison, it's harder to find a job or to get a loan. Fact. The medical community in this country has actually moved, I learned this in part 
with a, from a friend in conversation with him this week, actually, has moved from talking about drug addiction as simply a disorder to talking about it as a disease. The fact is, we know that some people are just more likely, they have the proclivities to, they're more likely to become drug addicts, to become alcoholics. It's how they're wired. It's not inevitable that they do. Choice is still there, of course, and so culpability, but that's a fact. Um, and that's a disadvantage. Compassion recognizes that without absolving of responsibility. God didn't absolve of responsibility. He called Jonah to go in and say, you're guilty, repent. But he had compassion. Until we see people as disadvantaged, again, and not just at fault, we will never have the compassion of God for them. So the left, politically, it's the fault of the environment. I'm, I'm caricaturing, but stay with me. It's the fault of the environment, right? The right, it's their fault. God says both. God's Jonah, written 700 years before Christ, 2,700 years ago, is way ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. Maybe it is God's word. Maybe God has insights into the human soul that he created and came to save. Um, the fact is, the Bible tells us that we deserve destruction. We're guilty before God, and yet we are disadvantaged. We're in darkness. We're slaves to sin and Satan. And so God's solution to that was not to just be callous toward us, certainly, or prideful. It, it, it wasn't even to feel sorry for us. It, it's called the gospel. His solution is called the gospel. And the, and the gospel is that he came himself. He, his compassion moved him to actually come and to do something about our situation and to save us. Um, we don't deserve God's mercy, mercy, but he pities us. He has compassion on us, and thank God that he does. So that's a bit about what does compassion look like as we close. It looks like understanding. It also looks like, as I've sort of intimated and said, it looks like action. One pastor preaching on this text, Jonah 4, said, he said, compassion, it, just, it does something. It's not just a feeling. When I think about compassion, that's the first thing I think is, man, I feel terribly for that person, and that's good. But biblical compassion moves it acts. It changes. It brings to bear on a situation. It brings riches into poverty. It brings forgiveness where it's needed. Um, it's not just a feeling. It acts. It helps. It alleviates. It is the hands and the feet of Christ. And the fact is, in this book, we see that. This whole book is really about God's heart for the nations and for us, his compassion and it's about him sending. He feels this for the Ninevites, and so what does he do in the opener and all through the book? He send, He calls his man who has every advantage, who has God's word, who has God's forgiveness, who has the sacrifices and the law, everything that's pointed him to Christ who will come in seven centuries, and he says, you get to these ignorant wretches, these people that I love that are evil, and you go tell them something about me. You tell them they're about to just be destroyed. With every word of judgment from God, there's always a tacit hope. And the Ninevites get that. So even though, even though Jonah says nothing about repentance, they, they understand now is the time to repent. And they do. So God does something. He sends his man and he relents. He doesn't just feel bad for him and then burn him up. If I'm a Christian and I'm not doing anything to help the poor and the oppressed, I am not by biblical definition I am not compassionate. 
I don't care how I feel. I'm not compassionate. But as we've seen, God is. It marks his very heart. And if God is compassionate and I am not, can I, with rights, call myself his child? Because guess what? Children look like their parents and they act like their parents. And if God is compassionate and I am not, if I'm not compassionate toward the poor, the misrepresented, the underrepresented, the disadvantaged, should I be considering myself a child of God? Or should I stop, pump the brakes, and let this book speak to me and say, hang on, God, am I your child? Do I need to repent? Do I need to come to you? Convict me of my sin. Change me. Um, but don't just take my word for it. Hear the words of Jesus' half-brother James in chapter 2. James 2.14 says, James says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But don't just take Jesus' brother's word for it. Take Jesus' word for it in Matthew 25. He says this. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. John 3.16, even if we know nothing about the scriptures, we probably know this verse. Um, We've seen it on football posters on ESPN, at least the reference. For God so loved the world that he what? Prayed for us. No. That he gave his only son, his most precious son, to be crushed for us so that we could be made whole, to be damned to hell so that we could be saved. He came, this God of compassion. Romans 5, 8, for God shows, other translations say demonstrates. How? 
his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What will we as a church do? How a church, Tim Keller, I said this before, serves the poor is in many ways a litmus test for its validity. Does it understand the gospel? Not, hey, serve the poor and therefore God will approve of you, but if you get the gospel, if you get that Jesus Christ came and was made poor so you could be made rich, if that, if that, if you believe on Christ and that grips you in any way existentially, it will change you. Yes, by degrees. Never will we embrace this as we ought to, this side of glory. Never. But it will change us. It will change the way, we, way, way that we, excuse me, spend our resources, of which we are stewards, the Bible says, not owners, and of which we will be held to account. So what are we going to do as a church? Um, again, the parable of the stewards we will all stand before God and say, he will say, how have you used my resources that I've lent to you? What's the return been like? I don't want to stand there and say, I've used them all on myself, oh master. I really don't. But so much of my life so far has been that. Confession time. Not false humility. Not pointing the finger, guys. Confession time for me. I don't want, I want that to be a good experience for you, that standing before God the owner of all things, when you answer that question, how have I stewarded your resources? I want that to be a good experience for me and for you, for us as a church, as your pastor. Gosh, I want to lead in that, and man, I want us to be heading in that direction. Um, one of the things that we want to do, and we're in conversation, and I'm not a financial stewardship team. I'm a guy. I'm a pastor, and I, I have a team. Thank God. Um, but I'm talking to our team, and my team's talking to us about how can we be as generous as possible. Right now, we're tithing. We're going to give 10% this summer. We get to do that, 10% of what we've taken in. We get to start some partnerships. We get to give some of that money away to plow it into the kingdom. Eventually, we, we, we always want to give as much as we possibly can. I, I would love, I would love, I'm not the financial stewardship team. My team knows this. I would love for our goal to be half of what we bring in, at least half of what we bring in goes back out. I would love to bring it up 10% every year. I would love to stay lean on the two big costs to churches, staff, because you are the saints, you are the church, Ephesians 4, to equip you to be the church, not to be a professional church, not to have a huge staff, and to be all about planting churches, and to be the presence of Christ in this community, and not to have be pouring a lot of money into facilities so that we can plow into justice and mercy. I mean, these are the things God calls us to do. Hey, God, uh, how should I live? Three things. Do justice. Love mercy. Maybe I, maybe I should be about those things. Yeah. Um, the poor, those in prison, women seeking abortions in part because they feel they have no other options being about fostering, being about adoption, having a culture of that, not just the oddball family in the corner that's happened to adopt a kid. How about it's normal? How about we, we pray into that and live into that and beg God for that kind of heart, his heart of adoption, human trafficking, fighting it, a heart for internationals, for Muslims. Wow, God, give us a heart for refugees for those that are not like us, and for those that are, they just, they're in this culture, they are disadvantaged. 
You've given us such an advantage, God, by coming and saving us. May your heart grip us and send us out. As individuals, are you marked by compassion in your relationships like God is? Are you marked by compassion? I'm not. How about your politics? Are they marked by, you're like, whoa, hang on, that's a different. No, I'm not saying, I'm not making a political statement about any of the categories I just mentioned. I'm not, but I'm saying who we are in the gospel ought to inform our politics. It surely ought to. Your politics, are they characterized by compassion? Yes, as well as thinking about all the issues, of course. Or are these spheres and more in your life more marked by judgment? More mar- Do they look more like Jonah and less like God? Guilty, God, change me. That's my prayer. Could it be our prayer? Finally, what compassion looks like. As we've started with, so we will finish. I started with something Jesus actually did, and I want to finish briefly with just a story he told that you're all familiar with probably. What compassion looks like. It looks like uh, understanding. It looks like action. And most of all, it looks like Jesus. I've already said it, compassion was the emotion most ascribed to Jesus in the Gospels. It is. Um, it's the word splagnizomai. And I only say that because it's fun to say. But also because it's onomatopoeic. It sounds like what it means. It means guts. Doesn't splag, splag. Doesn't that just sound like guts? It means guts or entrails. Okay, why? What the heck? It means that when you feel compassion, when Jesus felt compassion, when God felt compassion and pity for these Ninevites, it grabbed him by the gut and squeezed him. You ever felt that way? Painful. Painful. This is the heart of Jesus Christ for us. Um, and this is another way in which, I mean, this, this series has been subtitled God's Heart for the Nations. Jonah, God's Heart for the Nations. He's cool, by the way. Family worship, I'm all about it. Jonah, God's Heart for the Nations. We see so much. Jesus had a heart for the nations. He drove out the court of the Gentiles with a whip of cords. He drove out all the money changers in the court of the Gentiles where only the Gentiles and non-Jews could worship so that they could actually come to God and worship God. He did the work on the cross so that everyone could have full access to God, Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus, God is full of compassion. He's characterized by it in Jonah. Hey, this guy that shows up 700 years later that claims to be the son of God, He looks just like the God of Jonah. Hmm. Yeah, he is God. He is full of compassion. And when Jesus was on this earth, he told probably the most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, in that parable, there are two sons, but the one is the one that the parable focuses on at least first and that we focus on. And, and, And he just, he's profligate. He's prodigal. He spends everything. He wastes it. He wishes the father were dead, basically. He just die and give me all of your money. I don't care about you. I just care about your stuff. And he goes and he just wastes it all. But then he comes to his senses in verse 17 of Luke 15. He comes to his senses when he's at the end of his rope and he just goes home. And the father is within rights in that culture not to do, just to say, sorry, not only sorry, but get out of my face before I do something horrible. I mean, just get out. You've wished me dead. You've spent all my stuff. You've dishonored me. You've shamed me. Get out. That's what I deserve. That's what this homeboy deserved. That's not what the father does. It says that the father saw him in the distance, which means that as he was returning, the father every day was just scanning, scanning, scanning the horizon, waiting, watching, 
and it says when he saw him from afar, he it doesn't say this, but he 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 would have worn not jeans like I am, but he would have worn a robe in that culture. And it first of all, when you run, you got to hike up the robe, and that's not dignified. Also, running for a patriarch not dignified. Don't care. Homeboy pulls up his robe and just starts going. <laughs> runs out to his son, his son and throws his arms around him and just covers his neck in kisses. And he won't even let his son finish his speech. I'm sorry, uh, Father. I, uh, he just cuts him off and says, nah, I, 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 come in, party time. I'm so glad you're back. I've been waiting for you. And um, that's the Father's heart of compassion. Um, it says in the parable that the Father felt compassion when he saw his son. That's what propelled him out. But the, one of the genius readings of Tim Keller, um, and he wrote a book about it called The Prodigal God, and one of his great insights into this parable is that the parable is about two sons, not just one. And um, we have to understand a couple things um, about this parable before we really get it. Um, so the older brother was sitting there, and when he came in from the fields working, he was the faithful one, and he hadn't squandered his father's inheritance. And when he sees the party going on for the younger son, he's like, that's so unfair. I'm not going inside. And the fact is that I identify more now with that older son, but earlier in my life, I was the younger son. And I feel like that tends to be the trajectory in the church. Like, one point we felt like the younger son, but we've been brought in now and we tend to be more like Jonah and more like, you know, looking at the outside, looking at the sinners out there and just being hard of heart rather than having a heart of compassion. And so that the trajectory tends to be we move from younger to older son. But the parable was told, Jesus told the parable to both of them. Um, and the question that that parable and this book raises is how can God show compassion to the younger son and in the case of Jonah to Nineveh? to us, because he's not just compassionate, he's just. And the fact is, to, to get at that question, and then I'm done, we have to understand, like I said, two things about this parable. One is the cultural context. So in this cultural context, the older brother was the custodian of the family, especially with an older father like this. Things were passed to him, and he was to keep the family together, which is one of the main reasons for the law of primogeniture, which is that the stuff generally, most of the estate went to the older son in large part so he could keep the estate together and the family together so that it wouldn't be just parceled out to 10 children, okay? He's the custodian, not just of the stuff, but really of the whole family. He takes over that patriarchal position. Um, and also, we have to understand that cultural context, but also the story context. This parable is told at the end of three parables. So there are two other parables that Jesus tells, as you probably know, that are, that are like this one. And they're of the coin and of the lost coin and the lost sheep, and then this one's of the lost son. But in the first two, the owner goes out to find, works to find the lost thing. In this case, nobody goes out to find the son. The father doesn't go out to find him. He runs out to meet him. But we're... It's very Hebraic. We're supposed to see what's missing in this litany and go, oh, that's strange. And this is, I think, one of Keller's brilliant insights. We have to understand who is telling the parable and to whom is it being told. 
Jesus is telling the parable, and it's being told to the Pharisees, who are the religious custodians. They're the custodians of the oracles of God to their people. And he's saying, you're the older brother. You're welcomed in. But what you're doing, rather than going out to get your younger brother, which is your right, privilege, and duty, is you're, you're just crossing your arms. And you're seeing me with sinners, pulling in sinners, having mercy on sinners, showing compassion to sinners, which is what you should be doing. And you're just ticked. But you need to come in. And you need to realize that you, just like the younger brother, are privy to all of my estate through no good of your own. And the other thing we have to understand is, again, who was telling the parable? Jesus. The fact is, what the Pharisees were not, and what I am not, and what you are most assuredly not, and what I am most assuredly not, we're on the same level. Jesus is. He, he fulfills that role of the older brother. Because what does he do? He leaves home. He leaves all the riches of heaven, which is his home, and he becomes poor. He comes down here to rescue us out of our misery that we deserve. And he sees us not only as guilty, but as greatly disadvantaged. And he leaves every advantage, and he comes down, and he lives a life of obedience that we can't live. And he gives that record to all of us who will believe. And then he dies a wretched death on a Roman gibbet on a cross, a crucifixion. He's murdered. And then the wrath of God is poured out on him for the sins of the world. And he brings us into the heart of the Father as we trust in him. He gets what we deserve. He comes out and he gets us at the cost of not only his life, but his eternal life, his soul. Um, such is the compassion of God. Would that that penny would drop a bit more today, this week, as we celebrate our freedom, to celebrate a freedom that if we've trusted in Christ, we have that's much greater, the compassion of the living God um, for us. Would we be, would it make us a people of compassion? Not to earn God's favor, because we can't, but because we have it in Christ. And all we are called to do is to trust in him and then to call out to others, come on in. The table is spread and set and waiting. And speaking of table, here it is. So let me close, and then we will, we will celebrate communion together. Father, thank you for being a father, a son, a spirit, one God who is three in person of compassion. Give us your heart. Change us as a church, as members, individual of this body, with you as our head. In Jesus' name, amen.